a sweet prayer, isn't it? To be able to pray that the Lord through our lives would be glorified, that our lives would bring glory to his name. It's a tall order and one that we cannot do on our own. It's why we need the Lord to be our rock and our redeemer. So thanks for our worship team to uh, really set the tone for us this morning. And uh, welcome back to everybody to the Family Center. It's been several weeks, but it's good to be back in here. We've enjoyed our time of worshiping in the park and worshiping over the intersection, but I think there's a little bit of a sigh of relief, especially amongst a lot of our uh, staff here to have everything back in this room. A huge thank you uh, to life group leaders and those who helped haul a bunch of the chairs back over here this week. That's a no small undertaking, but uh, it looks good. It looks really good in here. We're excited for uh, the rolling out of this new carpet and rolling out of a new sermon series here. So I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13. If you have no Bible with you this morning, we would really love for you to be able to follow along. So we have our two heaviest power lifters in the church who are going to haul those Bibles to the back. You just offload one by raising your hand and they'll make sure that you get one uh, so you can follow along with us this morning. Uh, And I recognize that uh, some of you, your excitement level just dropped a few points because you probably just heard me say, turn to a book called Numbers. Uh, That doesn't exactly inspire a lot of excitement, and I get that. So uh, if you need some help here this morning, uh, Numbers is the fourth book in your Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, uh, it's that fourth book there. Uh, We're also going to just read very briefly from Joshua 1, which is where our sermon series is going to be. So if you want to have your finger in Joshua 1 as well, that would be great. But we're going to be in Numbers chapter 13 this morning. And I mentioned we're going to begin a new sermon series in the book of Joshua. Uh, It's really slightly unfortunate that our carpet isn't red because then I could have told you we rolled out the red carpet for this, but at least our chairs are red. So we at least rolled out new carpet and red chairs just for this series here. Now, obviously, the, the book of Numbers is not the book of Joshua, Uh, That is because today we're going to spend some time laying the the groundwork for this series. There is a lot of history. There is a lot of background that is at play, and it's important that we revisit that together as we really set the tone for what we're going to be studying together these next few months. And so I'm going to read from Numbers chapter 13 and 14 this morning. Those are large sections, so don't worry. I'm not going to read all of it, but we are going to jump around, so I'd encourage you to follow along with me as I give you cues as to where we're going to be. So if you're able, Please stand as we read this morning from Numbers chapter 13 and 14, and we'll start in chapter 13, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one of a a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the people of Israel. Jump down to verse 17. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up into the Negev and up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell there uh, in it are strong or weak or whether they are few or many and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, or whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, or whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring back some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season for the first ripe grapes. 
Jumping down to verse 25, at the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, we came to the land to which you sent us and it flows with milk and honey and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and among the Jordan. Chapter 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Jumping down all the way to verse 26 of chapter 14. The Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, how long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead body shall fall in this wilderness And of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Going down to verse 34. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. Hopefully you had your finger there in Joshua chapter 1. But Joshua chapter 1, starting in verse 1. After the death of Moses... The servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, and you and all the people into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. This is God's word for us to meditate on this morning, a lot to look into, so please be seated and let's ask for the Lord's favor as we do that now. Father, this is a tall order. There's a lot to unpack in the moments ahead of us, and so we just pray for your kindness on us now. We want to be a people who learn from you. We want to be a people who are humble and dependent and who live and walk by faith and not in the temptations of distrust and unbelief. So help us this morning. We need you. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and honorable to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, personal introductions are an important expression of social courtesy. 
If you are at a, a party or a social gathering, or dare I even say a church function, it is commonplace for you to uh, introduce yourself to people maybe that you don't know and uh, do so maybe by introducing folks who are alongside you, family or friends. I know that I have been guilty on more than one occasion of doing really good at going up and meeting new people and getting several minutes into the conversation before they say, and sorry, who are you? <laughs> Realizing that I, in that process, never even introduced myself or who I am or even at times failing to introduce my wife or family. I don't want to make that mistake today. Uh, because today we want to introduce you, I want to introduce you to a good friend of mine by the name of Joshua. Uh, Joshua and I have spent a lot of time together over the last few years. He's a man who has incredible stories to tell, a lot of valuable insights to share, a lot of life lessons to learn from, and yet he often feels very misunderstood by many people. And of course, I do speak somewhat jokingly here this morning, but in all seriousness, uh, the person of Joshua in this book that we're going to study here has become very near and dear to my heart in recent years. And I'm excited to be able to introduce you to Joshua better here this morning. And I recognize that many of you probably know something about the book of Joshua already, may know that Joshua was the successor to, to Moses, one of the first great leaders of the Israelites. Uh, you may know about Joshua being a book full of uh, famous stories, especially the stories of the walls of Jericho falling down. Or you may know it for controversial figures like Rahab the prostitute who saved the Israelites. But you also may know it for more unique things like the fact that it's filled with war and battles and violence. Or you may know it for more mundane, tedious matters like land divisions, lots and lots of land divisions. But whatever you may or may not know this morning, my goal today is to help you see the very practical and relevant nature of this very old book. It is not just some compilation of war stories and map quests. It is a book about what it looks like for God's people to walk by faith. It is a book about trusting God even when you seem to have every reason to doubt. And so today, I want to convince you why this book is so crucial for you and for me. Uh, some of the most effective and powerful sermons I've ever heard in my lifetime have been sermons that have told me why we need to study a certain book of the Bible. And you ask yourself, why is that? Why can that be so powerful? And I think that's because sometimes answering the why is more important than the what. Uh, any of you who are school teachers here or who have been in school before know that a lot of times answering that why question is just as important as the material itself, right? If you're going to study math, understanding why and the relevant nature of math to everyday life is critical. Science, same way. And so today, I want to help answer that why question. Of all the 66 books in all the Bible, why this one? Why would we take the time over these next several months to study a book like Joshua, other than the fact that I chose it? So 
Today, I want you to consider six reasons why we should study the book of Joshua. Six reasons why we should study the book of Joshua. And uh, Joshua is the sixth book in the Bible. And because of that, I think that we can come up with six very quality reasons why we should study it together these next few months. And so I want to give to you here six reasons uh, why we should study the book of Joshua. So let's jump into that together this morning. And our first point is going to be the longest because it really sets the tone for us. But the first reason we really need to study the book of Joshua is because Joshua is about putting the past behind Uh, Joshua is really a book about putting the past behind. We have to remember that Joshua picks up on a storyline that is already five uh, books of the Bible in the making, Genesis through Deuteronomy, a section called the the Torah or the, the law that was written by Moses himself. And Joshua really comes on the heels of several decades of failure on the part of the Israelites. So let's take a a, a quick rewind, right? Let's push the rewind button. Let's go back to the beginning for just a few minutes, go on this little rabbit trail, because I promise you this rabbit is worth the time this morning. And let's just give a real quick history of where we are in Israel's development. We go all the way to the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, and we see the Lord encountering a man by the name of Abraham. He chooses Abraham out of his grace, and he says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation of people. I will bless you with descendants, I will bless you with land, and through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. And really, the rest of the book of Genesis is God building upon that plan through Abraham's descendants, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, characters that you're probably well familiar with. And by the end of the book of Genesis, we see this people group starting to become more of a a family, but they're not in what we would call the promised land. They're actually in the land of where? Egypt. God's providence had sent them down to that land to actually survive and to incubate. And we see over time that that uh, little family grows into a huge nation. And by the time we get to the book of Exodus, we see that this is a large people group, so much so that the Pharaoh of the land feels threatened. And what does a threatened Pharaoh do? He enslaves them. He says, let's not let them revolt against us. Let's subject them now. And so Exodus is a story about God delivering his people out from this bondage. After a while, they cry out to the Lord. The Lord raises up a deliverer by the name of Moses, who by these plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea brings God's people out into the wilderness where they become his set-apart people. And they receive God's law, and they learn what it looks like to live and exist and dwell with a holy God. That's actually what the book of Leviticus, the third book of the Bible, is all about, what it looks like for God's people and imperfect people to dwell with a holy God. And after about a year, the time has come for them to move forth from there to the land that the Lord has set apart for them, which is where we get to the book of Numbers. And as we have seen here in Numbers 13 and 14, it is the first attempt of the Israelites to take the land. And what we see is that it does not go well, does it? Uh, Let's recount that failure now as we think about what it looks like to put the past behind. Going back to Numbers 13 for a moment, we see there in verses 1 through 3 that they are now officially on the cusp of the promised land, and God calls for Moses to send in 12 spies, one from each of the tribes of Israel, to the land to go see what the land is like. Now, question for you this morning, since you're good Bible scholars, does God not know what's in the promised land? 
No, God knows what's in there, doesn't he? He knows what awaits them. He knows what the land is like. He's the one who created this land. So why does he call for them to do this? I think that it's only with the course of time that we see that the Lord has questions about whether or not this people are completely trusting him the way that they need to, whether they are really living by faith in his power and his provision. And we see in verses 25 to 33 of chapter 13 that the people come back, and they come back actually with a very mixed report. The beginning of the report sounds very good. This land is awesome. Flowing with milk and honey, I don't know what that's like. It sounds awesome, but the fruit of land is good. There's so much to like, except just this one little detail. And the one little detail is actually a really big detail because they come to find out that the people of the land are big. The walls of the land are big. The task before them is big. Not everyone felt this way, though. Uh, We learn in verse 30 that there was a faithful man amongst the group, and we actually learn later in chapter 14 there were two faithful men, one of them by the name of Caleb and the other a name Joshua. And Caleb says in verse 30 of chapter 13, he quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. You see, Caleb and Joshua knew what the rest of the people didn't, that the Lord was truly with them. But the voices of the two are drowned out by the voice of the ten. In verse 31, the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against this people, for they are stronger than we are. And you know what? Humanly speaking, they were. They were. They were bigger. But what does this do for the whole nation of Israel in, verse, in chapter 14, verses 1 through 4? It sends them into a tailspin. I mean, when I read that earlier, did that not sound irrational in their response? They cry out. They grumble, they complain, they go so far as to say enslavement in Egypt was better than this. It would have been so much better if the Lord would have just let us die in Egypt or die in the wilderness rather than bringing us to this place where we're now fresh meat for these people. In fact, we should just, you know what, let's just get a new leader and let's start packing our bags and heading back to Egypt. That's pretty, that's pretty stark, isn't it? And what do you imagine God is thinking as he watches all of this unfold? Well, I'll tell you what he thinks. Look at verse 11 of chapter 14. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you, Moses, a nation greater and mightier than they. The Lord's kind of annoyed, isn't he? And notice what he's so disappointed in. He says, these people go into the land and they see these giants and they see these giant cities. And suddenly they forget all the ways that I have delivered them previously. When they were enslaved in Egypt, who brought them out with insects 
who delivered him with flies and frogs. Who did that? When they were at the crossing of the sea and had nowhere to turn, nowhere to run, who opened the water so that they could walk on dry ground? When they grumbled in the wilderness because they had no food and water, who provided bread from heaven? Who provided water from the rock? Did not I do that for them? And yet suddenly now when we get to this land and we see these giants and we see these big walls, suddenly we think, well, so much for that. And these people are so quick to forget and to lose trust. But I ask you, church, this morning, how often do we do the same? How often do we know and experience the goodness and grace and power of our God, and yet then we find ourselves at a crossroad and we throw our hands up and we just wonder, well, I don't know what God's going to do. And in fact, I don't know where God is. I think our study of the book of Joshua and the Israelites is going to show us that we are far more like these people than we often think we are. The good news is that Moses intercedes for the people to spare them from God's wrath. But God cannot obviously let this lack of faith go unpunished. We read verses 26 through 30 of chapter 14, where that whole first generation from 20 years of age and older who did not believe they would perish. They would die. They would be forced to wander for 40 years, one year for each day that they were in the land spying it out. Essentially, this group of people would become a wandering funeral service for the next 40 years as a constant, daily, hourly reminder to them of the consequences of unbelief. It is one of the most stark and piercing visual representations of a hard lesson to learn but one meant to provide the people the importance and the reminder of walking by faith. And so the people begin this new stage of wandering, 40 years. We would have no time to go through all that in the book of Numbers. By the time we get to the book of Deuteronomy, the people are getting close to that 40-year mark. Moses is about ready to pass on. And it's really, the book of Deuteronomy becomes essentially Moses' farewell sermon and his commissioning to this new generation to remind them to trust in the Lord and not repeat the mistakes of the previous generation. And thus, we get to Joshua chapter one. An opening verse reminds us that Moses is no more. His time has passed, he has passed. And Joshua now assumes command of God's people. And thus begins his leadership, but more importantly, begins a new stage and a new age for these people. And as we look at the start of the book of Joshua, we see very clearly that Joshua is a book about second chances. It is a book about putting your past behind you and all your previous failures. It's a reminder to us that God does not forsake his people because of their failures. Yes, they did have to learn through a very hard lesson and through much discipline. Yes, they had to learn lessons the hard way, but now they are at a place of new beginnings. 
And they are being offered the chance to put the past behind and to move forward in faith. I'm not sure what spiritual failures you have experienced in recent years. I'm not sure what ways maybe you have fallen short in your own personal and spiritual life. But what I do know this morning is that the book that we're about to study for these next few months is a book full of grace, full of hope, and full of second chances. Uh, But Joshua is not just a book about putting your past behind you. It's also a book about moving forward in faith. In fact, that's what we have chosen to name this series is Joshua Moving Forward in Faith. After all, what was the cause of Israel's failure in the book of Numbers? Uh, What was the failure of the first generation of Israelites? It was walking by faith. It was walking by trust. Trust that God is able to provide strength, courage, and ultimate victory for his people. But as we've said before, this has nothing to do with the size of your faith. It doesn't have anything to do with the amount of faith that you have. It has everything to do with what you are putting the trust in the object of your faith in. Let me ask you this. When the Israelites failed in numbers to take the land, what was the object of their faith? Was it not themselves? Were they not suddenly trusting in themselves to deliver themselves into the land? Contrast that with the standpoint of Joshua and Caleb in Numbers 14, verses 8 and 9, where they say, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Don't fear them. The Lord is the one who fights for us, not ourselves. And the test of this new generation of Israelites was whether or not that they trusted that same promise, that the favor of the Lord would be upon them. This trust is part of a bigger idea that I set forth all the way back in the book of Genesis because what was the promise that God gave to Abraham? Not just that his people would grow, his descendants would grow, but that they would also be given a what? A land. That they would be given an inheritance. In fact, the word inheritance is a word that you're going to see pop up over and over and over again in Joshua because it's a pointer back to the fact that God is faithful to deliver on his promises. To trust that what the Lord has stored up for you, he will keep. That if God has built a people, he will see them through completely. And we're going to see how God is faithful to do what he says. But we're also going to see what happens when God's people fail to put their complete trust in him as well. I promise that this is going to be a convicting book for us. Because it's going to challenge us to think about how we practically trust God. God in everyday life. When life is easy, but also when life gets hard and when the challenges are against us. 
It calls for us not just to dwell on or live in the past, but to set our sights ahead by moving forward in faith. And this is not a foreign principle to us. In fact, church, we just learned about this in Philippians. This is the very truth that Paul set forth in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, where he reminds us to not set our sights on the things that were from the past, the things that are behind us, but rather we need to press on towards what is ahead to see the goodness of the Lord that is stored up for us rather than constantly looking over our shoulder at the past mistakes. And so this is going to be an immensely practical book that even builds off of what we talked about in Philippians. But the third thing we need to look at this morning, the third reason we need to study the book of Joshua this morning is because Joshua is a book about strengthening our walk with God. It's about strengthening our walk with God. Well, Joshua focuses a lot on God's people as a whole. It still remains a very immensely personal book. Sure, it contains a lot of history, war, bloodshed, and land divisions. Did I mention land divisions yet? Can't wait to get to those. But it's also a book that emphasizes prayer, devotion, meditation, faith. In other words, it is a book that has been given, church, for your spiritual growth. After all, that shouldn't surprise us, right? Because isn't all of the Bible meant for that? Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17 reminds us that all of Scripture has been given to us for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, ready for every good work. The question that I have for you this morning is this. Do you believe that? Do you believe that every little portion of the Bible, every war story, every land division, did I mention land divisions yet? Every little bit of that is given for your spiritual growth so that you actually may be a more equipped follower of the Lord. Everything in the Bible, including Joshua, has been given so that you may be a complete follower of God. And we're going to see this truth immediately next week in chapter 1 with one of the most famous sections in Joshua, the call to be strong and courageous. But not just strong and courageous in anything, to be strong and courageous in the Lord. But that's just a teaser for next week. Fourth, fourth reason we need to study this book is because Joshua is about understanding the severity of sin. And while this introduction may make it sound like Joshua is going to be a really exciting and uplifting book, I do want to just prepare you even now to understand that it's not all success from here. In fact, there's plenty of failure, and a lot of times that failure comes because of sin. And we're going to see how Joshua forces us to think deeply about the character of God as it relates to sin and punishment. We're going to see how this rec- we reconcile things like God's goodness with these things like conquest theology, these uh, Israelites going in and taking back this land from another people group. We're going to see uh, what it means that the Lord holds one man accountable for the nation uh, just because of his sin. We're going to see what happens when you don't deal with your enemies, and we could say by extension, sin completely, and you leave just a crack in the door for sin to have a foothold on your life. We're going to be forced to wrestle with these issues every few chapters, and at the end of the day, I think they point us to a major theme that is present throughout the Bible, and it's this, God takes sin seriously. God takes sin seriously. 
And we as a people need to be reminded of that. We need to look into that deeply. We need to see how that puts itself on display in this book. And I hope that this study will cause you to think more deeply about sin and its impact on your life. But more importantly, the reason God takes sin so seriously is because of how sin mars his image and how sin destroys the glory of God that we are supposed to uphold and represent. So Joshua is a book about understanding the severity of sin. But fifthly, the reason we need to study this book is because we need to remember the greatness of God. Joshua is a book about remembering the greatness of God. It is a, it is a wonderful book that prioritizes memorization. And I don't mean just memorization of Scripture like you kids do at Awana. I'm talking about memorization about who God is and his character and his being and what he has done in the past. Remember, that was kind of a... Uh, that was an error on the part of the first generation, wasn't it? Forgetfulness. And to, to help them do this, to help them with their memorization, they're going to do something unique. And it's going to leave you scratching your head a little bit because you're going to see them every couple of chapters doing something weird. You're going to see them start stacking stones, piling stones on top of each other. And on the surface, it kind of looks like the behavior of an adolescent boy. And you're like, <laughs> don't understand what they're doing here, just piling on a bunch of rocks. But why are they doing this? Why the purpose of stacking these rocks? They are to serve as memorial stones. They are man-made landmarks that tell a story. Uh, they are meant to serve as long-lasting reminders, not to just that generation, but to future generations, so that when somebody would walk by and they would see those rocks and they would have one of their older generational friends with them, they would say, hey, what are those rocks all about over there? I've always wondered why that pile of rocks stands there. And that dear saint in the Lord would be able to say, oh, man, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story of God's faithfulness. Or even at other times, let me tell you a story of, of God's judgment and God's wrath and how important that was for us to remember. Memorial stones are important for us because it points us back to God and what he wants us to learn from him. In fact, it is not an exaggeration to say that the book of Joshua and all the other books that you have before you in this Bible, before you on your lap this morning, are indeed a memorial stone for you today. To remind you of the character of God, to remember the goodness of God, to draw your heart back into him and to not be so quick to be drawn away. And in addition to this, it is fitting for us to find reminders in our own lives that point ourselves and point other people constantly back to the good and loving nature of our God. Yes, Joshua will be a book about remembering constantly the great character of our God. But sixth and finally this morning, the reason we need to study this book is because we need to keep our eyes on God. Joshua is a book about keeping our sights and our eyes constantly on God. It would be tempting to think that the one leading God's people in this book is Joshua. After all, he is the, the human agent. He's the one that the book is named after. And so we would think to ourselves, if we were asked the question, well, who is the one leading God's people? We would be quick probably to say this morning, Joshua is. 
And while he is certainly the one appointed to guide the people throughout the land, it would be a mistake to say that this is a book about Joshua and his leadership. At the end of the day, the true leader that we need to keep our eyes on is none other than God himself. In fact, get this, Joshua's name points to that very reality. You know what Joshua's name means, right? Joshua's name in the Hebrew means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Who is the one who is able to save his people? Who is the one who is able to deliver his people? Who is the one who is able to give ultimate and final victory to God's people? Yahweh is. Yahweh is. And Joshua is just a mere pointer to the people of that reality as he leads them. If the people wanted deliverance, God was the one who must provide. As God goes, the people go. And for us, it is a reminder of where true and lasting deliverance can only be found this side of the cross in Jesus Christ. In fact, one of the really cool realities here is this, that Jesus in his New Testament name is actually the equivalent of Joshua in the Old Testament. In other words, what we see in Joshua is almost a foretaste that points us eventually to the final hope, the final deliverance that we have in none other than Jesus Christ himself. And so if you want to know true rescue, if you want to know ultimate victory, then you must follow the lead of the perfect Savior, the perfect leader that God has sent. And you must constantly set your eyes on him. Many of you are no doubt familiar with the game Follow the Leader, especially you little kids in the audience this morning have probably played the game Follow the Leader before where someone is appointed to do motions and movements and you are to follow in their step. Uh, The key to that game is to, of course, keep your eyes on who is the true leader, right? It does you no good to look at what everybody else is doing if you're not looking at the person who is ultimately guiding the rest. And that is a, a good principle for us to take as we look at Summing this all up this morning, I want to encourage you to follow God, the true leader, as we go throughout our study of the book of Joshua, because this book is going to provide the unique temptation of following into a trap. And it is the trap of human achievement and human efforts where we're going to be tempted to want to look at man and his efforts in this book, to see Joshua and his leadership, to see Rahab and her saving deliverance, to look at strategies and military plans and to look at the human side of things and forget the very one who is directing it all. Because behind, or we could actually say in front of, everything is the true leader of God's people, which is Yahweh himself. And so I just want to encourage you at every twist and turn in this journey to keep your eyes on God, to remember his character, to remember his grace, to remember his power, and without any pause, to remember his goodness. Because if you do so, I believe that you will be blessed by this study and you will be given everything that you need to move forward in faith. So let's pray. 
Father, this has been a big task this morning to just lay the groundwork, but we're thankful for the time to do so. And we do want to ask now for your favor and your kindness on this study. Lord, we want to be a people who walk by faith. We recognize we live in a world full of distractions. We look, live in a world that is constantly trying to uh, tempt us towards living and operating in our own strength and our own ability. And if we know anything about this book and the rest of Scripture, we see that, Lord, what it looks like to be a true follower of you is complete surrender. It is dependence. It is to set our eyes on the one who truly gives power and life and is himself our deliverance. And Lord, we know that you have an inheritance stored up for us as your people, that you are drawing us on this journey of life towards an ultimate and promised land. And Lord, yet we live in a world full of sin and temptation and straying, and so that is why we need your help. And I pray for humility as we go throughout this study that you would make us into a people who are quick to leave past failures behind us and move forward in faith by setting our eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. So would you do that today and in the weeks and months ahead for the glory of your name we would ask, amen.